8.7 WPSC, the only radio station on the campus of William Patterson University, and this is also a podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp, along with your professor, Dr. Esteban. Marconi. That's who he is, that's who we are, yes. and that's what we do. We are with our great guest today. His name is Bruce Pilato. He's artist yes. manager. He is a publicity maven. Is maven a good word? Yeah, I guess. Publicity maven. So he's a maven and our manager. A maven man. The maven taught man. Taught him everything he knows. That's yeah. right. Oh, Mark, yeah. Marconi's yeah. former student. One of my first yes. students. Yeah. First, first, Syracuse first. University. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, real first. There were some mornings where you came over your head. <laughs> Oh, it looked like you must have been gigging the night before. I'm sure I was holding three jobs. At that yeah. <laughs> and we also have a, a, a co-host with us. His name is Matt Manning. Matt Manning making it happen. Yeah. Hey, man. Right. He's the man. Uh, a couple quick things you should know about, because you're listening to WPSC, you're listening to the po uh, podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Go to musicbiz101wp.com, sign up for a newsletter, read our stuff. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, the Facebook, at MusicBiz101WP. We want to give thanks to the Music Biz Association for the space because we are on location in Nashville, the Tennessee State. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and we are here. It's a chilly room, but we're happy to be here. It's not chilly because of the company. It's chilly because of the temperature. And all our temperatures we use are Fahrenheit. Height. Yes. And you are afraid of heights. Yes. We want to give thanks to Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management. With artists like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, and KISS, there is only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com. Do you know Aaron Van Dyne? I do not. Okay, because uh, he managed, uh, the, the, does business management for the Rascals. Oh, okay. So that's, yeah, that's yeah so Gene's yeah. always in his office. Oh, yeah, so. uh, that's from the old years, yeah. Uh, right, okay. right, 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 okay. From, uh, okay, so, uh, so that's uh, White Hat Management, Van Dyne Bruno. We also want to give thanks to Rob Fusari. At the end of this interview, you are going to hear his song, Don't Let Love Down. He's Grammy winner. He is one of our uh, alums, Rob Fusari, and he wrote with Lady Gaga. He's written big hits with uh, Will Smith and Beyonce, so he's, he's done very well. He's well on his he's way. Yes, 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 he's doing well. And we want to remind you, by managing your band, the sixth edition, it is out now on Amazon, the dot-com people. So purchase that. And now we are going to begin the interview with Bruce. And Matt Manning is going to begin with a brief bio, and then uh, you'll do the first question. All right. Nice to meet you, Bruce. Hey, nice to meet you. So Bruce Pilato is the owner of Pilato Entertainment, Marketing and Media, and represents one of the top acts of the classic rock world. He's worked directly with Carl Palmer, Asia, The Sex Pistols, Glenn Matlock, and just to name a few. Bruce's company provides both domestic and international clients with the marketing, artist management, promotion, and project development. More recently, Bruce does catalog development for several labels and continues to work closely with his clients. So, Bruce, my first question for you today right, is, I know you started early in journalism. How did you breach the, how did you get from journalism to artist management and PR where you are today? Well. You have to go back to the beginning because it's a life in the business for me, and um, I, I'll try to make this brief, but basically I grew up in upstate New York, in, in Rochester, New York, 
uh, which was a very thriving artistic community because of the Eastman School of Music and uh, and, and various other uh, things that came out of there. You know, very uh, incredible people came out of Rochester, like Cab Calloway and Chuck Manjone and uh, Gene Cornish, who went on to be in the Rascals. But and I uh, could inject when he, the time he's talking about, because I was in Syracuse, <clears throat> was if you made it in Rochester, you could make it anywhere. Yeah. And if mm -hmm. you didn't make it in Rochester, you weren't going to make anything. Well, of course, Mitch yeah. Miller came out of there yeah, as well. That was the, that was the thought, right? Mm -hmm. For some reason. So, so what happened is uh, I didn't come from a particularly artistic family, although my mother was a uh, an artist in terms of uh, water, watercolors and all that. But my dad was an attorney, and. Uh, I just loved music as a kid. I was just crazy about it. I used to listen to records as a three-year-old and sit in front of my mother's record player. And what happened is my dad uh, was very active in the Republican Party. They were running the city at the time, and the city ran the Rochester Community War Memorial, which was the big arena there. So my dad, uh, being an attorney and being active in the Veterans of Foreign Wars, got appointed to the board of directors for the Rochester War Memorial Arena. Uh, and what ended up happening is he started taking me to things like, you know, the Shrine Circus and the Royal Lipizzan Stallions. I'm like seven years old, you know, and I'm going to see this stuff. And then 1964, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I had an older brother and an older sister, so we sat there spellbound, obviously. And then all of a sudden, like magically, rock bands started coming through Rochester. Uh, and uh, yeah, the Rolling Stones came in 65, and there was a group called Peter and Gordon I saw. 65. So anyways, my father would say, do you want to go see the rock concert? And I, you know, I'm like nine years old. It's like, yeah, dad, why not? You know, and of course, screaming girls and everything. I said, oh, this is a good job. I like this. This is, this is might be something I want to get involved with. And then I was hooked. And uh, in a period that ran from about 65 to I went to college in 74, uh, I saw, uh, well, you name it, the Jimi Hendrix experience. And I met Jimi and I got a picture with him and I met Led Zeppelin and I met uh, the Yardbirds with Jimmy Page right before Led Zeppelin was formed. I met the original Mamas and the Papas, and I was backstage for all these shows, and I got to see something that was just, uh, I mean, it was a lot like that movie uh, Almost Famous. Mm -hmm. It really was my mm -hmm. thing. So what ended up happening is when I went to school, I got involved with the school radio station, which we had an FM station in my high school, the first in the United States, by the way, to uh -huh. get its FM license, WIRQ FM. Uh, and I was the station manager and the program director. And then I went uh, and, and I was writing for the school paper. And I went to Syracuse University because that was the leading communication school on the East Coast. And I figured, okay, I'm going to be a rock journalist. Even though I was a musician and I played in bands and did all of that, I realized being backstage at the, at the arena that, you know, the guys that work behind the scenes have much longer careers than the artists who many, many of those guys only had a three or four year window. So I said, okay, I'm going to be a rock journalist. I was reading Rolling Stone and, and all that, and I, I became the, the music editor for the Daily Orange newspaper, which at Syracuse University was a daily paper. Uh, and while I was at Syracuse, I got to uh, hang out and write about and spend an exorbitant amount of time with a lot of up-and-coming artists by the name of Elvis Costello and The Police and Sting. and uh, Well, he was with The Police. Uh, Talking Heads came to Jabberwocky, which yeah. was our student a uh, little Rathskeller that we had. And, you know, I was living this life. I was on the concert board at Syracuse University, and uh, I ended up uh, going to college with a bunch of guys who later begotten, became known as the Syracuse Mafia. And one of them went on to be the president of Warner Brothers Records. Another one is now the head of CAA's music division. So, you know, we were living the life. 
And we had teachers like uh, Mr. Marconi or Professor Marconi, we used to refer to him, and uh, several others. And, and in my uh, years at Syracuse, I had Todd Rundgren, I had uh, uh, Frank Zappa, I had Captain Beefheart, I had Clyde, I think Clive Davis came up one year. Yeah, did. Yeah, so we, these were the guys that came and talked to us, and it was one of the earliest schools to have a music industry curriculum, not a degree at that point, but it was a curriculum. Mm -hmm. So anyways, uh, okay, so then what ended up happening is I, I went to, uh, got out of Syracuse, and I said, oh, I'm just going to go to New York and L.A. and be an A&R guy for a record company, or I'm going to write for Rolling Stone, or I'm just going to live this life, and I'm going to do it in a big city, because I can't do it in Rochester. But I needed some money, and I had to, you know, kind of get things going. So I was offered a job with the Gannett Company, which is a big newspaper chain, which at the time was based in Rochester, then moved to Arlington, Virginia. And I went there, and I started working for the local paper. And I said, well, I'm just going to do this for a year or two, and then I'll leave. And of course, I got married, and we had a kid, and and now I'm buying a house, and here I am, 24 years old, and I got all this responsibility strapped. But I was still doing the music journalism for all these magazines around the country, and what I realized, and this is the essence of this very long story, is that Rochester was a great place to live if you wanted to be in the music industry, but not necessarily you know, on the front lines. What it was is it was one of the leading test markets for tours. The t big tours would never open in New York City. They did not want Madison Square Garden to be the first show. Mm -hmm. So they would play Syracuse, Buffalo, Rochester, Albany, Glen Ithaca, Falls. Glen Falls, all right, all that. So, you know, I, I, I get hip to this very early on in my life, and I said, wow, you know, Peter Gabriel's opening his tour here, and he's rehearsing here for three days. Oh, and Bruce Springsteen's opening his tour in Buffalo. He's rehearsing there for two days. You know, and I'm writing for national magazines on the East and West Coast. And I get an interview, and I get these guys before they hit New York City. And that's what propelled my journalism career. And, of course, I caught a break because I was trying to get into USA Today. I was writing for other Gannett papers, but USA Today had just launched a, a, a couple years earlier. And now it's, the, uh, I don't know, it's mid-'80s. And, uh, I, you know, I was really trying to get in there. And, you know, now we've got people that we use from New York and L.A. And just by fluke, I was writing for a recording magazine called Mix, and it happened to be a favorite magazine of George Harrison. And I never interviewed any of the Beatles. Uh, and he was coming out with his big comeback album, uh, which was Cloud Nine. It was the f first time he had done anything in eight years after Lennon had been shot. And I requested an interview with him, and it turns out that he was reading my stuff in Mix Magazine, and he liked the way I wrote. And he said, oh, I'll do that guy, right? So I then went to USA Today and said, look, I'm getting a George Harrison Harrison interview. He's only doing five interviews, you know, um, or six or whatever it was. And I said, you know, um, I can get you a George Oh, well, we want to have it at the Beatles. First time he's talked since Lennon, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, but it's got to be the cover. And, you know, I'd never written for them. And they said, what? And I said, yeah, if you want it, it's the cover. That's the deal. And they said, okay, you got the cover. So my first story in USA Today was the cover story. Uh, of course, you know, I'm Italian. My name ends in a vowel, so I used that leverage to, you know, to get what I needed. And, uh, uh, and, and from that, it was clear sailing. Because once you had done a Beatle at that point, um, you know, it, it was in. I was writing for a lot of magazines, and I did that for many years and then made the transition to other areas in the industry. Mm. But then how did you get into management? Which was oh, yeah, I got to answer the original question. Um, okay, so then what happened is the, the 80s came around, and, and, and all this was going on, and there was this invention called the compact disc, 
okay? And up to that point, we'd all been playing these big black things called vinyl records, okay? And I, um, I was a massive record collector, and of course, my, my dad being an attorney would take me to these estate sales, and there'd be like, you know, some guy would have 200 records that we could buy for 50 bucks, and I just built up this massive collection. Of course, as a journalist, I was getting everything sent to me. But what was interesting is that I also kept all the promotional materials that were sent, the bios and the photos. And I lived in upstate New York, I had a big house, and I, I amassed a massive collection of, of, uh, of rock publicity stuff and uh, all music, not just rock. And so what ended up happening is record companies started calling me up and saying, um, we're doing the Village People compilation uh, you know, from vinyl, we're going to CD now, and we need a picture of the second lineup of the Village People where the Indian changed. Do you by any chance have that photo? I said, yeah, I got everything. So they started hiring me for my archives, and they said, well, could you write the liner notes? And I started writing liner notes, and then it was like, could you help us pick the tracks out because you really know music? And I started doing, so I started working for Rhino and Warner Brothers and uh, Universal and all these companies, and I was helping them with these box sets, these uh, CD box sets, which was a big thing when CDs first started coming out. And of course, I had to work with the artists. And you know, I, I had amassed a huge collection of taped interviews through my journalism years, so I could do everything, liner notes, everything. And um, what ended up happening is one of the first bands I started working with was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in the early 90s. And I hit it off with Greg Lake. And uh, he was very impressed with my knowledge of music. And I found a very rare live recording that he had done as a solo thing. And I said, you know, you should release this as an album because it's the best thing you ever did. It was a radio broadcast. And he said, yeah, that's great. He goes, go get the rights. I said, what? He goes, just go get the rights for me. So I went and I secured the rights for this live recording and we put it out and it sold a bunch of copies. And he said, you're really good. You're going to be my personal manager. So ELP had a guy in England, but I was Greg Lake's personal manager. And I didn't know about personal management, but I figured, you know, let me try it, right? I had managed a few local bands, that was it. And then from there, I got into the ELP family. I met Carl, uh, and that, that, that goes back to like 92, 93. And then uh, from that point on, word got out, well, he's done this for them, and he's done that for, for these guys. And then I started working with groups like the Tubes, who I managed for a while, and I uh, eventually got into managing a lot of what we call the Heritage Acts. And now I split my business between management and public relations, and I have a PR firm. Uh, that handles people like I've done Meatloaf and uh, Little River Band and you know all kinds of groups and and that's a situation where I get taken on for six months or a year and then yeah. you know they might rehire me again and they might not but usually they do. Cool. Very so that's how I made the transition. Very nice. Thank you. Um, so you have a very long career. Very lots of things going on. You've done a lot. My question for you now is what experience in your career stands out to you the most? When you think of everything you've done so far, what's the moment you think of? Uh, I, I couldn't limit it to a moment. I can limit it to principles. Okay. And the most important principle is your work is never done. And I live by this thing called the six Ps, which actually Greg Lake taught me from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And uh, do you have any idea what the six Ps are? Proper planning prevents piss-poor performance, <laughs> okay? And when you're a manager, you have to anticipate train wrecks, uh, earthquakes, uh, the earth falling off its axis. Everything could be hunky-dory, and the next thing you know, you know, the axle on the trailer on the bus is broken, and you can't get to the gig in time, and how do you get your band there? Um, so what it is is it's, it is a lot of the uh, Boy Scouts be prepared kind of thing. 
Um, and I still make a lot of mistakes because I just assume that it's going to be okay. I mean, I had a, a problem uh, yesterday here. Uh, uh, Carl was doing a, a cocktail party thing at 5 o'clock, so that meant he had to sound check from 3 to uh, 4. That's fine. He's got a very intricate setup, very intricate drum set. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, they had more people that had to sound check after his four o'clock end, which meant we had to strike the stage, take down all the mics and everything. And it's like, I didn't know this until yesterday. And, you know, once you do a sound check, you don't want to touch anything. Yeah. So, you know, I'm still dealing with it all the time. I mean, uh, and, and, and uh, Carl, God bless his heart, will always say, uh, you know, learn from me. And, you know, he does have 10 years on me in the business, so I, do, <laughs> I still do learn from him. Uh, yeah, so I would say it's, it's principles. It's, it's just uh, remembering a lot of stuff that didn't go right and making sure it doesn't happen. And just uh, it's being pedantic. It's like, okay, I know I called her. She said the hotel was ready, but I'm just going to call again just to make sure the keys are there. Because it's a simple thing. You get in at 11, 11.30 yeah, at night, yeah. they're exhausted, and then you have to fill out all these forms and register them in the hotel. Yeah. So I, I take care of that in advance, and I send it off, and when they get there, they say, here are your keys, Mr. Pilato, and I hand them out to the guys, and off we go. Very nice. So journalism, artist management, PR, marketing, are there any other branches of the music industry that interest you? Well, funny enough, I've, I've, I've taken on the, uh, the role of uh, the esteemed Professor Marconi here. I've, I've actually been uh, asked to teach at two uh, colleges. One is, uh, one is a university, one's a college, Nazareth College and uh, the University of Rochester, who have uh, a music business division. Mm -hmm. And what has happened is um, I've, uh, I have a tough time doing that with my traveling. So I've narrowed it down to uh, two, like, eight-week courses that are taught on a Tuesday, one college in the morning, the other college in the afternoon. Mm. We start the, in the middle of January and go to the end of February, and we start Labor Day and go into the middle of October. And even when I'm on tour, you know, I, I'll fly home and teach those two classes and then go back to the tour because eventually I would like, I would like to uh, have a life of academia in my later years. Um, they've made me, I guess, an associate professor, but I'm, and I do have the degree, so they will make me a professor eventually. Yeah. But, uh, I'm not quite there yet. Very cool. May I ask a quick question? Yeah, of course. Speaking of being a professor and all that, one of the things uh, as a professor is you have to constantly get get published and people have to read stuff you're doing. And I'm actually putting together a project for, there's this organization called the Music and Entertainment Educators. Music, right? Yeah. Music and Entertainment Educators Association. Mia. In industry, Industries. Yeah. Mia. Anyway, there's, an there's a big association for people like us. MEIEA.org. You should check it out. Yes. And we actually had the president of it, John Simpson, here yesterday. Oh, yeah. John managed uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter and. Started Sound Exchange. Yeah. Started Sound Exchange. Wow. Yeah. Really good guy. And <coughs> so, anyway, so there's a question that I'm asking lots and lots of managers because um, it's uh, the exact same question of everybody. I'm very curious what your answer is. The question is, what is the single most important aspect of the music industry an artist manager needs to understand? The one thing that you think every manager needs to understand. It is constantly changing and it is constantly the same. <laughs> it's always the same, but it's always changing every day. So there are, you know, there are core principles that never change, and that's really for any business, okay? But the technology has changed everything. And the most important thing probably in the last 20 years is that the live performance is king now, not the record. An artist 
life used to revolve around the release of a new album. Everything was based around that. That was the sun, and everything else were little planet, planets that went around. <clears throat> now the sun is the tour, okay? And what ends up happening is Madonna will announce her, you know, Rebel Heart tour, okay? Not her Rebel Heart album. The Rebel Heart album is just a, you know, a byproduct because there's no money in records anymore, very little. Um, and the other thing is you have to be very innovative in terms of creating um, alternative revenue streams for your artist, okay? Because quite frankly, you know, they're like anybody else. They got a lot of bills to pay. And artists used to have the luxury of having an album that was in the top 10 and they could say, well, I got royalty checks coming in every month. I, I, I don't have to tour for two years. Well, that's over. I mean, that's why people like Clapton are still touring. Um, so I think w what you have to do is, you know, we've come up with products that we sell. Uh, uh, in Car Carl's case, we came up with a Carl Palmer symbol, which is a little 10-inch splash symbol that we sell at the shows, and he signs them. And people don't buy them to play them. They buy them to put them on their wall. But uh, there's a very healthy profit in a product like that. So, uh, you know, I'm always looking at other revenue streams. I'm always looking at how technology can take the artist to another level. And I deal with a lot of legendary guys and classic guys who are still old school, and it's, you know, um, I, I got artists that still don't do email. I'll be honest with you, um, but or, or do it do, do it in a very limited uh, capacity. So um, yeah, it's always changing, but it's always the same. That's great. That's very yeah, interesting. Good answer. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, do you have any suggestions for any young artist managers trying to find their way into the industry? Um, two things. Uh, I grew up in, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and that was the age of specialization. If you were going to be a lawyer, you were going to be a patent lawyer or a divorce lawyer. If you were going to be a doctor, you were just going to be you know, a foot surgeon or whatever. In the music industry, that doesn't work. You really have to be a master of all trades. Uh, or, not, not a jack of all trades, a master of all trades. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got all the work I can handle. I'm turning down work because I have experience in publicity. I have experience in media. I have experience in tour management. I have experience in deal making. I have experience in, in a lot of areas. It didn't, it didn't happen overnight. I mean, this is a 40-year career for me. But being where I was in upstate New York, I had to you know, work for promoters and work for publicists and deal with journalism and just do a lot of different things. And what I found, you know, and I worked in advertising for many years because I couldn't quite make enough money to feed a family of five. I had three kids. Um, so I worked, you know, in advertising as well. And now it's all kind of ancestral. It's all kind of uh, interbred now. I use my advertising skills with, you know, in, in the terms of how I market an artist. I use my publicity skills and how I get them out there and brand them. So, you know, you really, the idea is to try to absorb as much from as many different areas of the business as you can. And obviously, you know, if I had to pick one job, it would be, you know, being a manager. But being a manager involves all these jobs. So I don't know mm -hmm. if I answered your question. No, that's great. That's, yeah. that's What's fantastic. interesting, yeah. I spoke last week uh, with your friend Dave Laurie. Yes. Do you know Dave? I've met Dave, yes. Okay. I don't know him very well, but I know who he is. Yeah. We, we had this similar discussion, and he basically said exactly what you said. He's done so many different jobs in the industry, and the more things that you've done as, a, as an artist manager, you can bring that much more because you can put yourself in the shoes of other people. So you can tell, you know, the, for the publicity person, they have to have this done by this time on this date, and you can call the label and say, did she do it? And, and know the person hasn't done it and know that you have to start lighting a fire under somebody's belly 
to make sure these things happen because the only way you can do that is because you know that they're supposed to do it. Because I mean, I mean, if you look at like the guy who's the manager for the Who now, he started out as a roadie, and I mean, you know, and he's a fierce deal maker. I mean, uh, you know, so uh, he didn't learn that overnight. Mm -hmm. It just, it, you just, you, you learn from failure. That's all I can tell you. And you have to fail a lot of times. I'm still failing at things I do, but you know. You know, what do they say? You know, you, you've got to try. If you, if you don't try things, you're never going to. Uh, what I try to do is I look at the upside and the downside of things. Okay, if I say to myself, uh, you know, do we want to give up two days of the tour and come to the Music Business Association Conference? i got to look at the upside of it and the downside of it. And there is a downside. You know, you're losing two nights of revenue. Um, I, I, had to, I had to pay for the band's hotels for two nights here. I had to, you know, I had to pay, you know, so there was expense involved. When in you say end, I, meaning you, well, you were a company? Well, no, the or, tour, okay. we had to figure that into the budget yeah, of the okay. tour. Okay, I mean, you know, we, we could have picked up a, even a, a small paying gig somewhere, you know, that at least covered all the hotels and transportation, but, you know, when you're at something like this, you can't do that. So, um, you know, you got to look at the upside and the downside of, of, of things, and, uh, and you got to find the balance, because sometimes you have to do things that don't make money, and you have to do things that lose money. Um, we just made a huge investment, and you know, Carl might even tell you this, a huge investment in a video projection system similar to the one you saw last night in that room. And uh, we've got a screen that's as big as one of the screens that were on either side of the stage, 14 by 8, which uh, we found a company that makes one that folds down into a case that's about the size of a large suitcase. Mm. It's unbelievable. And you open it up, and it's, it's as wide as this thing and twice as tall. And then... Uh, then we had to decide, okay, well, the kind of venues we're playing, right? Uh, I can't use a normal projector because you can't have the depth, you know, to fill a screen that big. So we mm -hmm. found out that Epson makes a, a lens. It's like $6,000, but you can put it three feet behind that screen or three feet in front of that screen, and it'll fill a screen that big. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you say to yourself, well, we got to spend the money. We got to do it because, you know, we're not playing arenas yet with this band. Um, Carl is playing arenas with his other band, Asia. Right. But so we bought a system that'll work in both capacities. And when he's out with Asia, he actually re will rent that screen to Asia. Yeah. And they'll pay him much less than what they would pay if they had to rent it in every city. So, anyways, yeah, you you, you look at all those things, and you you have to make sure that you're doing the best thing for your artist. What what was the upside? Because you had mentioned uh, a well, the upside is uh, you know we we ran into the guy who's the president of uh, of his record label. He was here, and we ran into uh, a lot of people. And the whole idea was we figured you know with this Alice Cooper reunion, we knew about that. We figured okay, there's going to be some some exposure at this thing. Um, and 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 the idea was I was able to secure uh, a gig on Sunday night at the City Winery. Mm. So we had a gig in Nashville because mm -hmm. if I couldn't have put a Nashville show together, we probably wouldn't have come here. Mm -hmm. It just wouldn't have worked out with the routing. But you know, we came and did that. So it's just a matter of you know we could have just done that gig and then gone and maybe done a couple other gigs. But chances are on a Monday or Tuesday we probably have a night off, and he would rather do something like this and get the exposure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Who's uh, the agent that you guys work with? Uh, well, it was funny. We've had a couple different agents. Asia works with a company called APA, which is mm -hmm. pretty big, and they have uh, a lot of big names. Uh, Carl, when he does his ELP uh, legacy tour, which is what this is, um, um, I was booking it myself just because the agency we had uh, had done a great job, but then a lot of the great people left, and the people they had there, they, they were falling asleep. So I took it over. 
And then I got it back to a point where it was a pretty viable project and a, 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 an act that a lot of people wanted. And then um, we just uh, went with a company called Skyline, mm -hmm. uh, which is a mid-sized label. They're called a boutique, uh, I'm sorry, mid-sized agency. agency or a boutique agency. And they handle people like Mark Farner, Grant Funk, mm -hmm. and they've got Firefall and, uh, you know, they, they work with a lot of artists of that caliber. But, um, you know, to play the arenas, you know, you got to get booked on a tour that a big agency is involved with. You know, when Asia caught a break, uh, we got we got asked to open for Journey, mm -hmm. and that was 50 shows in 15,000 seat arenas every night or 12,000 seat arenas. So it's been good. Wow, we need to wrap it up. Yeah. So we want to thank you then, Bruce. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So Bruce Plato. Let's thank yes. Bruce. Well, this was fun. Great. I hope I told you some interesting stuff. Definitely, not a Definitely. lot of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Make you sure know. people listen to the podcast. Reminiscing. There is some good stuff yeah. here. Yeah, there's actually really interesting stuff. Even at just the tail end part about the boutique agency dealing with this type of artist who's still got a name and still has drawing power and can still drive revenue. Yeah. Even though, no, like you said, nobody cares about a new song by you know Asia, but they do care about. Well, there's a legacy there. I yeah. mean, Carl, Carl has sold 50 million records. Um, interesting fact for when he comes in here, he's the only, that we know of, he's the only drummer uh, that was in three different bands that all had number one albums. He was in the crazy world of Arthur Brown in, in when he was 17 in the 60s. And then ELP, who went on to sell 48 million records, yeah. uh, or 40 million records, and then Asia, who had a number one album for actually that first age album was the largest selling album of 1982 mm. thank god michael jackson didn't make a record that year <laughs> so um yeah that's the story but it's been great um thank you yeah. for having me and i'll be bringing carl down here and right. we can rock and roll we'll um two of this that's right yeah. is, is this well, is this where i can listen to the can i listen to the podcast will it be on again yes you will we have to finish our we have to close this out we oh, have to finish the closing yeah, yeah i'm sorry bruce yeah. how could you do this <laughs> Bruce Pilato, everybody. So Bruce Pilato, one more time. Very good. Matt Manning, yes. thank you, Matt Manning, very much. Yes. Really appreciate that. Dr. Esteban Marconi, thank you very yes, much. Yes, and my co-host. Yes, and I'm your co-host, Professor David Cope. We want to thank you for listening. Make sure you are listening to the podcast where you can find it on SoundCloud and iTunes. And at the end of uh, every show, besides uh, <laughs> coming up with some goo, we don't say hello. We, say. <laughs> we don't say hello. We say <laughs> adios. I can't remember when You looked at me and cried Said something broke inside of